If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today I want to bring you portions of a conversation that I had on the Healthier Tech podcast with host R. Blank. Some of you who listen to The Great Ideas Show here on WKXL or on The Great Ideas Podcast may recognize that name from my previous conversation with him in which we talked about the science behind electromagnetic radiation and some of the effects that that type of radiation, which comes from everything in the world around us that runs on electricity, has on our bodies, our cells, and our health. Turns out that there is some pretty compelling science that suggests it's a problem. There are direct effects that are measurable in the cells inside our body, and there's a lot more research that's needed on the association with various diseases. The show is also about other intersections between our health and technology, and that includes mental health and social health, the kinds of issues that have been raised by the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, and some of the documents that she's brought to light about research that Facebook has done about the impact of social media, particularly on teenagers, particularly on young women, and some of the other social effects that we've seen in terms of misinformation and what that's doing to our health and our society, not to mention our politics. So, R wanted to ask me, based on my experience, about how you start to make change on a topic like this. How do you advance a cause like this in a legislature or in the U.S. Congress? How do you raise social awareness about it? And so we got into a great exchange. I hope you enjoy it. And oh, and there's a disclaimer that you're going to hear right at the top of the show. The host here is my cousin, I believe in full disclosure up front. So this is not a random person. There's definitely very much a personal connection here. All the science that this is based on was done very much by my uncle, who was a biochemist, a, a leading authority, a leading world authority on this topic. So I hope you enjoy the show. If you enjoy this topic, if you enjoy thinking about the intersection between health and public policy and technology, you should check out the Healthier Tech Podcast. It's a great listen. And here is our blank. Hi, Matt. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So before we get into anything, full disclosure to everyone, Matt is my cousin. And credit where credit is due, uh, I think this is actually the first time anyone said this publicly, but Matt is the guy who actually came up with the name for the Overpowered book that I wrote with my father. And I, I mentioned it here because as time goes on, I feel like that name ages really well. It's more and more meaningful to me every year because it gets, it, it really gets to the heart of the EMF issue in just one word, that these devices are literally overpowered. They literally emit more power than is healthy, but even more than that, they emit more power than is necessary. So on behalf of everyone, Matt, thank you very much for that title. You also have a good idea of why EMF has been so hard to regulate. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I, I think about the challenge of passing anything 
through our system of government in four buckets. The first one that I think really applies to EMF is who owns it? At what level of government are you addressing the problem? Because you have federal ju jurisdiction, you have state jurisdiction, and in some cases you have local jurisdiction. Just at the federal level, the question when it comes to regulating the emissions from uh, electromagnetic sources, is it the Federal Trade Commission? Because you have a lot of consumer products, obviously, that use electricity. Is it the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, which oversees where transmission power lines go? Is it OSHA? Because people are bathed in this type of radiation in the workplace. Is it a public health issue? As we've seen with COVID, a lot of the regulation, mask regulation and, and distancing, has been undertaken by local boards of public health. And so you have this, when you have this mishmash, this overlapping set of who's on first, what's on second type government, it becomes a kind of many hands problem. Who owns it? Who's taking charge of it? And that just creates confusion. So, so when you have that kind of, that kind of landscape in terms of managing regulations, you know, ideally, it, I guess you'd want legislature to, to kind of provide some clarity on what needs to be done. Is that? Yeah, that's is that, right. That's, that's exactly right. In theory, the, the legislature, in this case, the U.S. Congress, although in, at the state level, it could be the state legislature, they're supposed to be the ones that make policy. They're the ones that are supposed to make law. And that kind of gets to my second bucket of problems, which is how do you actually get that done? This, this feels like I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. How does a bill <laughs> become a law? Well, one of the ways that a bill becomes a law is it has a champion because you're going to have to overcome opposition. And in this case, there are plenty of embedded interests, and they're not evil. When I say interests, it sounds like I'm saying something sinister. I'm not necessarily. But, you know, if you're talking about adding regulation and, and potentially cost to everything that we make that runs on electricity and the entire way we power our society, there are going to be companies and individuals who are upset about that. So you need a powerful champion. Well, you, you need to get someone on board to do that. But I'll just, you know, kind of throw in the third bucket of problem, which is Congress, as I think most people know, is it something of a deadlock? The productivity of Congress has been steadily decreasing, and you can see it in all kinds of statistics that I won't bore listeners with, but Congress is passing less and less meaningful legislation. It's finding it harder and harder to just do its annual homework of passing the federal budget. It's not able to confirm nominees to positions. And so Congress is, is kind of at a deadlock. And so even if you have a champion, it's just at baseline, not easy to move anything through the U.S. Congress these days. It's a little easier in state legislatures, but that's not necessarily a cakewalk either. So how, how, how do you get things done in, in Washington or any, any state capital these days? Well, it, it, it takes a lot of shoe leather. It takes a lot of hard work. And, you know, one of the keys in the super partisan political environment that we have created for ourselves, this, this wonderful political world that we've, that we've all brought our kids into these days, is that it, there's almost a zen of how to get something done. You have to make sure 
that it doesn't end up in the political crosshairs. Anything that gets too much attention, that you advocate for too hard, will automatically create sort of an equal and opposite law of thermodynamics, law of motion, kind of an equal and opposite reaction from the other party. And so it, you almost need to fly under the radar and not turn something into, and even then, it's no guarantee. Just take, for example, the infrastructure bill. This is something that President Trump had tried to get passed for four years. It was a widely agreed upon priority across Republicans and Democrats. And when it came to a vote, 13 Republicans voted for it, and they were immediately excoriated by their own party. There were calls for them to be thrown out of the party, including from former President Trump, and to lose their committee seats, and that they're no longer Republicans. And that's just the level we've reached. So it's very, very difficult to pass things. It's very difficult if they have any attention. And what it usually takes is kind of the right confluence of ingredients, having a good champion, having some level of bipartisan agreement, either a, a mutual non-aggression pact, we're not going to fight it out on this one, or just enough bipartisanship that you can get something through. We, we did sentencing reform that way, and an awful lot of hustle over a lot of time. That's interesting. So you, I mean, I'm glad that you're bringing some actual examples of of success actually happening. And uh, but it's interesting to me the way you talk about the need to I don't know depoliticize or I, I, you use the word Zen approach a topic or an issue with that sort of coolness in order to actually see progress. And 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 you, you mentioned a couple a couple of characteristics in particular, which which so I mean the question was originally about EMF uh, and EMF regulations. But I'd like to pivot that just a little bit because, you know, I obviously I focus a lot about EMF issues, but I and many others, I think a growing number of others believe that there are a whole set of health issues stemming from our relationship with technology. I mean, that's that's the entire premise of, of this Healthier Tech podcast. So certainly EMF is an issue regarding health and technology, but but there are other ones as well. Uh, so with some of these other issues, I think we do see more of a public understanding, a greater public willingness to act, and and uh, I don't know if you want to say bipartisan or nonpartisan interest. And 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 the example that comes to mind, which is pretty fresh uh, in everyone's memory, is Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. Can can you can you speak a little bit about? That? There's a growing realization, first of all, that mental health and physical health are part of the same continuum. And so, if tech is harming our mental health, then that's just as deep and profound an impact on us as a, an effect on our physical health. Actually, that distinction is sort of stupid on its on its face. <laughs> but there's also, I think, a growing realization in the last five years, especially about our societal health. In a very real way, the functioning of our politics, of our of our public discourse, of our ability to kind of understand current events and news and what's happening in the world around us is being shaped, skewed, perhaps even warped by our relationship with technology and the filter through which we understand the world, which is increasingly technology-based and social media-based. We've seen it in the insurrection. We've seen it in vaccine misinformation, scientific misinformation. And that, of course, takes us around the circle back to EMF. So that's a, that's a great point. And 
I, you know, to your, to your question about the Facebook whistleblower, what that is about is revelations from Ms. Haugen that Facebook knew based on their own internal work, their own internal research, that their products were causing harm, that they had evidence of that. Now, this isn't exactly a slam dunk scientific case yet. There's different psychologists, different social scientists will say, well, the evidence may be a little mixed. We haven't totally nailed this, but that's beside the point. The point is this company was doing its own research and its own research was coming back and the system was flashing red. It was saying, look, teen girls are reporting significant harms, especially. We've seen from 2010 to 2014, the rates of hospital admission for self-harm for girls age 10 to 14 has doubled. And you're just seeing a, a major confluence with social media usage and particularly Instagram, Snapchat, these visual interactive social media that really focus on the face and the way you look and body image. And so that is the issue that I think brought to the fore some of the some of the deep problems with Facebook and began to forge some of, as you put it, that bipartisan awareness. And what you began to see in the whistleblower hearings in Congress was bipartisan awareness. You saw Republican and Democratic senators saying things like, huh, Section 230, which is the part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that sort of governs how Facebook is regulated and the fact that it's lightly regulated or not really regulated at all, you saw Republicans and Democrats talking about Section 230. You saw members of both parties talking about the Facebook algorithm. They're talking about the way in which artificial intelligence baked into social media is warping people's brains without sort of our, our full understanding or control of the process. So yes, there is, I think it is a great analogy and it's a great sort of opening point for a larger discussion about how is tech impacting our individual physical health, our individual mental health, and our collective societal health? That was, that was so <laughs> I have so many questions after that. But what about, I mean, because you talk about in particular this period of time being a hyper-partisan period of time, and this is an issue at the intersection of, of tech and health, and, and issues at that intersection have proven sort of challenging to, to garner public interest and, and bipartisan support. What, what do you think about, about, about the issues at the center of the Facebook League make this different, make the, the legislative and governmental and regulatory response different? And you know we should point out, nothing has actually happened yet, but even getting this far is different than we've seen, you know, certainly on on the EMF issue, but also on other issues related to tech health and, and tech privacy. What 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 might be some of the characteristics about what's happening right now with the Facebook leaks that 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 are different? Well, I'm a Democrat, and so I am afflicted by Democrats' disease, which is I feel a deep seated need 
to try to persuade people on the basis of facts and evidence. And you know full well that that's not how human beings think. That's not how anyone is persuaded of anything. Actually, it's an open question of whether people are ever persuaded of anything. What people respond to is story. It's narrative. And I think what you see in the Facebook saga, we can even call it the meta saga, what you really see in that is a story. There's a narrative. There's a villain. There's a revelation. There's a surprise twist. And that's what happens with these kinds of whistleblower revelations. And it can be a turning point that can take an issue, especially an issue, as you say, that falls at the intersection of science or technology and public health. We saw this, for example, in the case of tobacco with Jeffrey Wigand, the tobacco insider. They made the movie The Insider, the 60 Minutes story, where he came forward and he said, look, the companies know about the science here. They know about the harm they're causing. That was that was the key. It went from, hey, the, the jury is still out scientifically. We don't really know. You know, we're doing our best. It was sort of a manageable PR thing for the tobacco companies to say, well, well we're making a safer cigarette, less tar, all of those kinds of things. Y you could see them kind of following a let's play it out communication strategy. We'll just keep stringing this along to all of a sudden, this was a totally different issue. You saw it with the Catholic church abuse scandal. Again, I'll reference another movie, Spotlight. The most famous moment of the movie Spotlight is Mark Ruffalo, who's a wonderful actor, but engaging in a little bit of overacting and screaming, they knew, they knew. Well, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that I think can change an issue, can, can rip it sort of out of this. It's in the background. Yeah, maybe it's something to worry about. But look, there's so many things to worry about in the world and in modern life that it's easy for people to kind of let it settle into the haze and this kind of revelation yanks it to the forefront. And so, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not like we've quite gotten there, but I would say that the issue of how we regulate social media has profoundly changed in the last year on the basis of the whistleblower. It's just at a whole different level of consciousness in the public and you know, we have the beginnings of maybe there will be some momentum legislatively. I mean, not to turn the question around on you, but I mean, is is that is that your experience when you look at this, that that it kind of takes a a revelation or or sort of a moment to break into the public consciousness? Yeah, well, that that that's a good question. And um, <laughs> the tables are being turned. I feel like I am not an expert on that on that on that particular type of question. I, I feel I, I do keep a close eye on these issues and it definitely feels to me that something has changed in the public approach to the perceptions of technology. I, Matt, as you know, and as many of my listeners know, I had a, I had a 20 year career in software development working for companies like Apple and Microsoft. And, and I was firmly entrenched in, in the California tech vibe where innovation is fantastic and give me more tech and everything that's new is great. And even before that, you know, as a, a child of, I don't know what you want to call it, but you know, the nineties more or less when the, the web was literally created 
and released to the world. And uh, it just, there was so much promise and such a positive vibe around all of this innovation. And, and that continued uh, for decades. And there was just this kind of implicit bias that technology is always good. And I feel like for the first time, really, in the past year, there have always been people who, who, who were advocating or talking about the downsides of technology, but they, they were just such a minority voice. But within the past year, something has changed where there is an, I don't know if it's a tipping point yet, but you know, something like a tipping point where people suddenly can, you know, are capable of thinking that technology can be harmful. And it, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time talking about EMF, but you know, the harm can come from multiple different vectors. And so your mental state, because of all of the fear of missing out or the uh, comparisons, when you check out your, your friends, Instagram walls, the, the loss of sleep that you have, just from the attention-grabbing addictive mechanisms that are in play here, all of these various factors. And beyond that, you know, going into the issues of, of pollution and technology waste, you know, what happens with all of, all of the devices once you throw them out. Something definitely has changed in the past year. Now, in, and we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to get to this in a second, the differences between the United States and other parts of the world, I feel like while something has definitely changed, nothing has actually happened yet. So there's been a change in public perception, and and it's, I'd say a pretty fundamental one, right? Where one where it's, technology can do no harm; it is only good. To wait a second, there are some costs here. There are some real costs here. We need to think about it. But that's where that's as far as it's gone. I feel well, in the U.S. Can, can I make a point about that though? Because I think that there's sort of an embedded. I agree with everything you're saying, and I think there's sort of an embedded good news or bad news version of of that that we can tell ourselves. The bad news version is that there are certainly cases where science develops or revelations emerge about a public health issue or a technology, and then it sort of wanders in the wilderness for a long time. So an example of that might be sugar. It's kind of like tobacco in that we know that 40 and 50 years ago, going back to the 1950s, food companies funded science blaming fat for heart disease and, and, and many other health ails. And it was sort of the fat makes you fat theory, which we've seen is scientifically not right. And that work may have sent us on a multi-decade decade wild goose chase on fat when there's an increasing amount of evidence that sugar, added sugar, is a big, bigger problem for diabetes, heart disease, and you know other major physical health ailments. And so it is possible for things like this to sort of wander in the wilderness even as there's growing public consciousness. And we've certainly seen that in the case of sugar. We've also seen that in the most famous case, which is climate change, something where you know, we, we've made stunning progress, and yet we're still kind of stuck in terms of actual accomplishment. But the other side of the coin is, yes, it takes things a long time to develop, but it's still meaningful to kind of cross the Rubicon in terms of public consciousness 
and legislative awareness. And a great historical example of that was the quest for civil rights legislation. It was a multi-decade quest in Congress that was stymied by the Southern bloc in the U.S. Senate that would filibuster civil rights legislation to death. And so what happened prior to the eventual passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 was that under Senate leader, then Senate leader Lyndon Johnson, Democrats were able to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1957. It didn't do a whole heck of a lot. It wasn't much of an accomplishment. Advocates for a real robust civil rights bill found it incredibly disappointing and almost a waste of time. But what historians have found is that it it created an opening. It created a different mindset and it showed what might be possible and it really paved the way. We wouldn't have had 1964 without 1957. So there are certainly examples of that when it comes to public health and there's a lot more work to do, but I don't think it's entirely a bad news story when it comes to how long a trajectory EMF and social media regulation may be on. We, we, it may be a long journey, but I, I think there's been a palpable change and we've gotten going. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I totally agree. And I appreciate you bringing that note of optimism explicitly into the conversation because I did not mean to, to, to undervalue the change that that I was talking about having seen within the past year. I think it is major. I think it is significant. I was only, I was only commenting that it, it has only gone so far thus far. Although, you know, to be fair, it has only gone so far thus far in the United States. The Facebook leaks, like the issues of EMF, are about public policy at the interaction, intersection of health and technology. And in some other episodes this season, we discuss other issues that exist at the same intersection, issues like the right to disconnect, the right to be forgotten. And these are issues where I'm bringing them up now because these are issues that have seen significant traction in the European Union, even while they have seen significantly less traction in the United States, right? So the right to disconnect, for those who haven't heard that episode, that is the right to just not be bothered by your employer after work, by email or by phone. That is the law already in several EU nations, and it is uh, highly likely to become the law throughout the EU. That is, it, it might not sound it at first, but that is a, an issue that is squarely in the intersection of health and technology. What are, Matt, based on, on, on your experience in public policy in the United States, what are some of the factors why you think some of these you know, very important issues have had so much more success in Europe than they have in the United States? I'm afraid that I'm going to give a bit of a squishy answer to this, especially for a show that's largely about science. I do think it ultimately boils down to cultural differences. We've seen that the European Union, across a whole host of issues, just at baseline, those countries have a culture that's much stronger on consumer protection, that is much more aggressive about pursuing monopoly. There's an embedded skepticism about technology. And there's a very, in my view, healthy uh, appreciation for consumer privacy. 
there are threads of them in United States political culture, but there are also threads that run the opposite way. And we've had, we've been going through, for example, on Monopoly, we've been going through a long period in the US of very little regulation of mergers and acquisitions and monopoly power, especially in the tech sector. There's been there's been relatively little litigation or enforcement, and there's been relatively little policymaking in that area. There's also issues like genetically modified organisms, the EU, just much more comfort with at baseline with being aggressive about regulating GMOs versus in the US. And so I do think ultimately it comes down to some of these cultural differences and then that translates into political parties and political action. So let's take that that as a given. There there are these cultural differences. There is a strong anti-regulatory thread running throughout the United States. I, I take your point that that you see that in the Republican Party, but I, I think you also see it in, in 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 the Democratic Party, particularly you know flowing from 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 who's who's donating to 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 their campaign. So we we have this kind of landscape with these basically a different culture that you talked about, but at the same time, as you noted, we had this these hearings earlier this year where where members of both parties seemed very concerned about how Facebook was acting and seemed. I don't know if interested is the open to the idea of revisiting the safe harbor provision of of the Communications Act that you were talking about earlier. And so how do we get, right? Because there's something happening here where despite these cultural differences, there seems to be an opening, an opportunity for something to happen. So how do we get from where we are now, where there's this potential for something to happen to, to actually get in government? to help address the problems that emerge at the intersection of health and technology? I think there are a few ingredients that go into a success story in in different combinations. One is, I do think that at some level, as much as I've sort of been a little negative on the role of facts (laughs) in persuasion, at some level, facts do matter. You do need a case to be made that there's there's a harm here. You actually kind of need that if you're going to try to get an agency to make a rule to regulate. Frequently, they're required to do a cost benefit analysis on their rule, and so you need to know what the cost is and you need to know what the benefit is. You need to know what harm to the public you're avoiding through the rule, which ultimately comes from the science. So, it could be in the case of EMF it could be in the case of social media and self-harm to teen, gir- teen girls. All across the tech impact landscape, there is a role for science and facts. There's also an equal role for having a good story to tell, having, having harmed people, having a poster child, for lack of a better word, to be, be able to tell your story and it super duper helps that poster child happens to fall in the state or district of a powerful member of Congress or a legislator, if you're working on the state level, that can advance your cause and be a champion for what you're trying to accomplish. Sometimes it can even be a matter of 
just finding the right language to make legislators feel the impact of the issue you're talking about. I was working on telecommunications regulation, trying to get more broadband built in the late 1990s. And I was working with uh, an advocacy team. I was more on the sort of statistics and science end of it. And one day, one of our consultants, you know, we were talking about all the great facts and figures we had. And he said, look, what you really need is you need a catchphrase here. What I want you to do is take your bottom least broadband connected states. And it doesn't matter how many you've got, but it, it's great if your phrase has, if, if it rhymes or it has alliteration. So let's call it the disconnected dozen. And just, just say that these states are the disconnected dozen. Put that out. Doesn't matter the rest of the things you say. Well, two years after that conversation, I ended up actually working in Congress and when I was talking to some of my new colleagues, it turned out that the legislation that we had been advocating for, they had all gotten their bosses onto that legislation. Why? Because they heard that their state or their district was part of the disconnected dozen. That was something that resonated. So, you know, it, it's helpful to have these kinds of ingredients in the case. And then the final thing I'll say is it's, it's helpful to try to make this, there's an old there's an old piece of advice. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And when you have a big, difficult, intractable problem like EMF, which really does pervade everything we do in society, it may not be the best strategy to try and tackle the whole darn thing at once. So frequently a successful strategy is start at the state level and get a model piece of legislation passed, get a study passed at the state level, the impact of EMF, perhaps from transmission lines, get um, an instruction passed in an appropriation bill. That's how Congress directs how money is going to be spent from the federal budget. Get a line inserted into an appropriation bill, forcing the FTC to hold hearings on EMF or the impact of, of consumer goods that may be at high voltage, you know, find, find small successes that you can build on. None of this is easy, but there are plenty of case studies of successful advancement of ultimately very big societal change, big regulation, big legislation that started small and had some of these key ingredients in it. Can, can you think of you know, one? Well, you talk about the seatbelt example. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great one. Yeah, no, and actually that it, it, in overpowered, that's what, I mean, that's, that's the metaphor that we, we drew, we, we, we drew in, in that book because, you know, when you, I mean, maybe a little less so now, but 10 years ago, when we wrote that book, you, you, you talk about concerns about EMF and health and people sort of assume you're talking about banning cell phones. And, and that's, that's not the case any more than, you know, when you're talking about highway deaths, you're not talking, you know, the, the solution isn't to ban cars. It's, you know, a solution looks like something like seatbelts. And, it, you know, for, for people growing up today, you know, it might be difficult even to imagine a world in which cars did not have seatbelts. But it, it really wasn't that long ago. And it did require a big shift in, in public opinion. And it was super successful in terms of reducing fatalities. Right. And 
you see a lot of the ingredients in the seatbelt example. You're talking about unsafe at any speed comes out in 1965. You're talking about a decade, two decades and more to really see seatbelt laws, mandatory seatbelt wearing play out across 49 states. It took a long time. But what were the ingredients you had? Well, first of all, you had the science, you had the data, you had the facts. Second, you had poster children and they were conveniently or horribly located all across the country and in key districts and in key states. So you could get attention and an attachment from politicians to stories that are happening with their own constituents in their own backyard. And then what you saw was eating the elephant a bite at a time, you know, getting the installation of seat belts to be mandatory. Just the fact that you had to force auto manufacturers to just put them in the darn cars. Well, that was a big step. It didn't force everyone to wear them, but it was it was a necessary first step that paved the way for everything else. Following this kind of a pathway, again, it's not it's not a prescription for definite success. You see advocates, and this isn't an issue that I necessarily myself fully agree with, but you see people who are worried about genetically modified organisms. We're sort of following this pathway starting about a decade ago, and they were bringing up science and they were they were trying to create examples of of perceived harms with genetically modified alfalfa and how it meant that all of our milk was eventually going to be genetically modified. Did we want that? And then they were trying what they called the just label it campaign. They were going state to state in state legislatures and trying to enforce labeling. And sometimes that that kind of approach hasn't worked for that issue. It has worked in other cases. California air regulations, which you know, was a kind of a state-by-state state strategy, ended up governing what we do across the country because auto manufacturers don't want to deal with a patchwork of regulations, so they just adhere to what's in place in the biggest market in the country. So, yes, I, I mean, I do think while all, all of these examples can be double-edged, there's, there's no guarantees here, there are definitely pathways to success, and the seatbelt example is a good one. So if I had to predict something, I, my best guess is you're not going to see anything legislatively, but what you might see, what you might see is maybe the introduction of a bipartisan bill that stakes out, here's, here's an approach that we could live with that would break off a small piece of this problem that would be a start. And sometimes that in itself is an accomplishment. It's enough to continue the progression along the pathway to ultimate success. No, that, so again, a note of optimism. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, it's, what I hear is in the, in the short term, what we can, well, what we've seen so far just in the recent past is, is significantly different than what we've seen before that. In the short term, we can hope to make some incremental progress. And the examples from history show that over time, the types of incremental progress that, that you believe are likely in the short term, they add up to eventually seeing the kind of broader change that, that I'm talking about this season, you know, in other episodes happening already in Europe. And we can, we can, we can get to that point in time. Is that, is that fair? I think that's right. And look, progress in Europe can filter over. It can be a model for what happens in the U.S. You know, and the other thing is Donald Rumsfeld died recently, and 
among his more famous riffs, he was a complicated guy, but among his more famous riffs was, there are known knowns. There are known unknowns. There are unknown unknowns. Have I lost people yet? He's just saying that like in the world, there are things not only that we don't know, but we don't even know that we don't know them. And I think that's very, very much the case with this entire world of tech and social media and even EMF. There's constantly science being done. There's constantly research being done. If at any point we have a they knew moment on EMF, for example, perhaps on cell phones, because look, the movie Thank You for Smoking came out 15 years ago, and it was the, the big joke at the end of the movie was the cell phone manufacturers being advised by the PR consultant, don't worry about it. Just say the science is still out there. We're still working on it. Nothing's been proven, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's where the tobacco companies were. And so if at any point we discover, hey, you know what? Actually, this isn't an unknown unknown. This is something that people knew about, that there are some direct harms. You could see a domino effect. You could see regulation to protect people from that kind of intense EMF right next to your brain. You could also then see, hey, if you're having this effect with holding your cell phone up to your head or keeping it in your front pocket, well, what about the rest of the electrified world? And you could you could see movement happening that way. And perhaps advancement of right to disconnect or maybe even EMF-related uh, regulation or legislation in the EU could start to advance that conversation in the U.S., or it could happen on the state level. So yes, I know I'm sounding super optimistic about something <laughs> that like I, I, I want to acknowledge is incredibly hard. I mean, we've been at this climate change thing with full awareness of just how bad it is for 30 years and counting, and you know the U.S. remains a holdout. None of this is easy. It could be a long, long road, but I think we're on it now. We're definitely on it now. And sometimes change, change comes faster than you anticipate. Okay. Well, again, another upbeat note. I really do. <laughs> it seems I'm Mr. Sunshine this yeah, morning. It's, it's a little bit in contrast to the actual words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the doctor saying, look, this is super scary, your diagnosis. But um, here's the good news. You know, here's the lollipop <laughs> at the end. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for for coming on to the the Healthier Tech podcast and, and sharing some of your insight on this on this question. You know, where where can my listeners catch more of you? I would urge, I would ask everyone to check out the Beyond Politics podcast. It's wherever you find your podcasts. We have really interesting guests, including our blank. We have really interesting guests. We we call it Beyond Politics because we we definitely cover politics, but we cover news, culture, and society. We really do try and dig a little deeper like you do on your show. And we have authors and senators and thinkers, you know, really interesting folks kind of looking at what's going on behind the scenes. We have the author of a, a, a great book on the whole 25 year plus history of how we got to marriage equality in the US, you know, fascinating researchers and scientists. So Beyond Politics is the podcast. We also have some other shows. I, I, I'd mention particularly great ideas, which if you aren't so much into the politics, you just want to hear about solutions, 
policy solutions for problems that we face in society. That's what I cover there. We, we work with guests who run across the ideological spectrum and offer just ideas. They explain how things work and how to make them a little bit better. That's great. Yeah. We'll put links to both of those uh, in the show notes. So Matt, thank you again for, for coming on to the Healthier Tech Podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation and getting a chance to catch up with you. Me too. Well, that does it for today's episode. Remember, if you like this show and want to hear more, please subscribe. The Healthier Tech Podcast, available on all major podcasting platforms. And if you have a moment, please also leave a review. Reviews are really critical to help more people find this podcast and learn about the important and undercover topics that we discuss.